Good morning, and welcome to week five of Star Trek Sundays, now in the Star Trek Sundays Club. Today, we're going to be discussing the sacrifice of leadership. I'm Victoria, and with me is my co-host, T. At the top of the room, we have pinned the Star Trek Sundays website. Star Trek Sundays is a passion project for T and me and forms part of a new YouTube channel, which will post highlights from these conversations. Once we have a few videos posted, we'll link the channel on the website. I enjoyed this this week's homework and have a lot of questions for everyone. So uh, for now, I'll turn the mic over to T. Thank you so much, Victoria. Um, the uh, topic of sacrifice of leadership is something I personally see a lot of lessons to be taken from. If it's just being a father or the CEO of a corporation or the leader of the free world, leadership is always going to require sacrifice in one form or another. I believe that when we look back at history, the historians will tell the tale of humanity in terms of its great sacrifices and how we grew through them or failed to learn our lessons regarding the need for them. How different might our world look today if only our politicians were willing to make hard choices instead of popular ones? How much freedom would we have to give up if we didn't have countless soldiers giving their lives in battle to push back against us losing it? It's not a fun topic, but it's a critical one to talk about, especially as it relates to our world today. And, as usual, the writers of Star Trek were light years ahead of the discussion with their bold portrayal of leadership and the sacrifices required for it. So, I'm looking forward to a good examination of some of their examples. T, let's start with um, Star Trek Into Darkness, because I this is the first time I had seen this as well. Can you provide a summary of the um, of the movie to remind those who didn't get a chance to see it uh, what it was about? And then I have a few questions for you. So Star Trek Into Darkness, film 12 of the 13 so far, released on the 16th of May, 2013. Now, I'll be honest, I had really low expectations for a reboot of Star Trek because it just wasn't something that I saw went going very well. And to be to be frank, I was really pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed it. Uh, a series of terrorist attacks places Captain James T. Kirk on a mission to deal with the culprit. Uh, but of course, nothing is as it seems as the Starship Enterprise is entangled in covert machinations to ignite war between the Federation and Klingon Empire with an ancient enemy in the mix, Khan, our favorite from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. With alliances tested, relationships strained, and differing motives, differing motives clashing, the sacrifices of leadership were constantly being put on display. So I chose this movie because it seemed to be completely themed around this very topic. Right at the very start, Kirk violates the Prime Directive to save Spock. Just right there, in the first 10 minutes, or 20 minutes of the movie. Spock was in turn about to sacrifice himself for the planet they were visiting from an active volcano. Kirk uh, was thrown under the bus by Spock, who filed an accurate report of the incident. Kirk eventually got his ship back but in the end, sacrificed his own life to save the Enterprise. In the reversal of that classic trope from Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, in which uh, Spock goes in to save the Enterprise in the warp core chamber. So, meanwhile, Khan was willing to sacrifice anything 
to keep control of his crew and keep them alive, who were basically family to him. All in all, I can't think of a better example where the sacrifice of leadership was put on display again and again from different people and for different reasons. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I noticed that myself and I wondered whether it was because I was watching it with this theme in mind, which I find really interesting because um, as I go through these um these movies and these episodes um, with the thought of a theme and discussion, so much more comes out of these shows than just watching them for entertainment. So um, I do come out contemplating a lot and I did notice that with this one. So as you said, at the start of the movie, Kirk violates the prime directive and they say that directly, um, which would have made him sacrifice his friend. And um, so for you, like, did did he make the right move or was he being selfish, um, you know, by not seeing that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? Um, it, there's a, a tiny scene and they don't go back to this much. I, I wondered if it was planting a seed, but there's this tiny scene um, right before they leave the planet where the occupants of the planet uh, are drawing in the sand the shape of the starship, uh, the Enterprise, and, and as if they're worshiping it, and um, and I, I I got that that was sort of the hint of this is why we have the Prime Directive, is so that we're not impacting these people and they don't just assume certain things. And of course, at one point we're going to have to start talking about religion in this um, in this room. But uh, so my question is, did 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 Kirk make the right move? Um, I, I think that ultimately Kirk acted very selfishly in the beginning. And I think that was sort of driven home later when he acted selflessly um, in, in that, you know, the, the whole mentor-student mentor relationship that exists between Spock and Kirk. Spock uh, teaching, you know, trying to teach Kirk the value of logic and Kirk trying to teach Spock the value of, of, human, of being human. Um, that was one of the things where Kirk had to learn the lesson. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And so while he did act selfishly and he did act out uh, outside of the prime directive and the prime directive does exist for a reason, I think that, you know, they were sort of placed in a, in a, in a bad situation to begin with. I'm not sure they should have been there. That, that planet was probably destined, or that tribe was probably destined to be wiped out, evolutionarily speaking, because that was, the volcano was going to consume them. And so if they were, if Kirk was correctly, you know, following the, the prime directive and following the lesson that he ultimately learned about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one, he would have sacrificed Spock. It was the wrong move. And yet through his series of wrong actions, that was the situation that we eventually became faced with and the outcome that we sort of have to deal with. And so, you know, while we can sit there and, and say that it was wrong, ultimately a lot hinged on it. Spock's life hinged on it. And Spock did go on to do a lot of important things to, you know, to, uh, to, to, you know, save more people. So it's one of those questions that's 
multi-layered and, and very faceted. But, you know, I think that if I were Kirk, I might have sacrificed Spock because that is the sacrifice of leadership that people in that situation are asked to make. Yeah, I mean, I mean right after that, I think Spock tells Kirk that he would have let him die because that's what they're made to do. And and uh, the more I watch this, the more I realize how military the the whole uh, Starfleet is and that they would have been trained to do this. Uh, so it, it seems that when they, they don't do this, they're really going outside of the rules. And, and as we know, Kirk likes to do that. Uh, so I'll just do a reset and then we can invite uh, Jamesy and Joshua and, and Moses up. Uh, this is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. To be notified of future shows, please join the club by clicking on the words above the title of the room. Today, we're discussing the sacrifice of leadership. And right now, we're talking about Star Trek Into Darkness. Hey, Joshua. Welcome to the stage. Hey, Joshua. Hey. Glad I could make it for this time around. I did not pre-watch, though I have seen Into Darkness. Um, so I'm kind of going by vague memory on this. I don't know if I have enough recollection to make an opinion on Kirk's actions in that iteration of the story. Uh, but I, one of the things I always have appreciated both in the uh, original series and in even in the J.J. The Abrams reboot kind of thing is that thing that you were talking about, Victoria, of Spock and Kirk uh, playing dual role of student and teacher simultaneously and the kind of the, the benefit of you know, each of them being willing to learn what they could from the other. Yeah, I, I do love that bit too. It, um, it reminds me of, of the great relationships I've had with some bosses that I've had and even some of my employees. Um, when you're open to being able to learn from each other, it, it, um, it just makes a, a much richer experience. So I'm just going to uh, go back to some of my notes here because I took lots of notes in this one. Um, so uh, one of the things we talked about, the prime directive, and I just wanted to make mention, Sean isn't here today, but he mentioned it last week. Um, and and when he was mentioning it, he was upset that the, the prime directive was um, had been broken, I guess. Um, so and and at one point it was implied that Kirk's successes in this movie were due to blind luck and this is something that we considered in the Kobayashi Maru episode as well. So starting from the beginning um and and as T said earlier there were so many examples of sacrifice and leadership and I just want to go to the the character who planted the bomb and he actually sent them the message um, out about the bomb. And um, and basically he did that because uh, the character Khan, and I don't think we knew it was Khan at the time, had said that he could save his daughter. So this guy um, 
Now, I'm, I'm not sure if this is leadership or desperation or both, um, but this guy sacrificed himself as the leader of his family. I'm thinking he probably felt that way. Um, he sacrificed himself and many others to save one. And that kind of goes in the face of what we were talking about, Kirk uh, being able to sacrifice um, Spock to save many. So... Um, so I, I just I wanted to know to you if you had uh, recognized that and and what you thought about that and is that just in his mind a form of leadership but in fact it was just crazed desperation and I don't I don't know what I would have done in that spot right I don't know that I could let my kid die um, to save people I didn't know or my workmates what about you. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't leadership. It it was leadership only in his mind. The the sacrifice of of many for one wasn't the right move. It was crazed desperation, and it's exactly what I probably would have done too. I am prone to crazed desperation. I think we're all prone to crazed desperation, and I think that you know part of being a leader is one's ability to overcome that more primal urge of, of that crazed desperation um, in order to go ahead and make that, that larger, you know, that, that, that to you larger sacrifice um, in order to recognize that the needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And I think that that is, you know, sort of one of the things that just, you know, got, got pushed home time and time again um, with regards to this is that, there's a, you know, there, there's a lesson to be learned. And when you fail to learn the lesson, there are consequences in, in one direction or another. And then even those who don't make it, the rest of us still have to live with those consequences. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was interesting. Uh, that 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 one because I wasn't quite sure of that and and I even have in my notes um, you know was this a form of leadership or am I being influenced by watching the movie with this theme in mind? Um, so a couple of other things with the the movie um, and and certainly I'll invite uh, some of the people up to the stage if they want to participate that would be great. Um, I, I also thought this was interesting because at one point. Uh, Scotty shouts that the mission was a military operation and not a ship of explorers. And this seems to be a modern take on Starfleet. I don't remember that happening in the original series or Star Trek Next Generation. Um, but we've mentioned that in our shows um, that that we're noticing more that it's a military operation. And I just wonder from your perspective, um, if if that was covered originally and and I'm just noticing it now or whether that's with hindsight that we're looking back and we're realizing that that the that Starfleet wasn't this they weren't freedom fighters as much as terrorists yeah i think that was sort of you know the the original in, in, envisioning of um of, of Starfleet was as this this situation where um you know the the they were the military dominant force and they had achieved that through military dominance right and part of the luxury of the enterprise 
was that they had achieved military dominance and they literally needed to go seeking new sort of, you know, encounters because they had they had they had mastered their sphere of influence, as it were. If does that make sense? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it sounds a bit psychotic. <laughs> In a way it is because you know, but but that's sort of the, the the drive of humanity is to go explore strange new worlds, right? Um, because the the existing ones don't hold any interest for us anymore, right? Is we is we need that novelty, we need that that you know, and and that was the that was the ongoing initially five year and then the ongoing mission of the Starship Enterprise was to go explore strange new worlds and bring in new encounters with with alien life forms because you know we we got this here at home right 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 uh welcome to the stage the director and jamesy um before i move on because i do have a couple more questions about um uh star trek into darkness do you guys have anything to add at the at this point um well, uh, Star Trek in the darkness. Um, yeah, that, that was, a that was an interesting turn in the franchise for sure. Uh, I think I need to, I should have, uh, said I'm ready to listen and then I will react once I get my bearings in the room. So, uh, please go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah. We're, we're discussing, um, it's Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse, as you know. And right now we're discussing the sacrifice of leadership. That's this week. And uh, we watched uh, a couple of episodes plus um, the movie Star Trek Into Darkness. And I, it was my first viewing of Star Trek Into Darkness. And I say the first because it won't be the last. I absolutely loved this movie. <laughs> I'm having a gas with my homework. Um, so, uh, so uh, Jamesy, you've been here since the beginning. Uh, do you have anything to add at this point? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of chime in on like what the military experience looks like from the inside, which is kind of what, what's being portrayed. And it, it's very different than what the military looks like from the outside, which is all kind of drill and ceremony and weapons and assaults and all that kind of stuff. Um, the military does very much operate as a collective. Um, you know, it has its personalities. You have your downtime. You have your ways of of coping. Uh, you have your your hazing. You know, um, and Star Trek, the way it's generally represented as military, is also as uh, as exploration. So, like, we have to kind of recontextualize like the military's function in exploration. We can look at examples of like Captain Cook and other you know great explorers, and kind of. Uh, through that lens oh yeah thank you for that yeah it, yeah it, just to it, follow on the idea of exploration and military you know what it what i always appreciated about star trek is that if they do use a military like structure um to communicate um a sense of dedication and purpose Right. They, they have a mission. They have a idea of what they're going to go and do. They're performing tasks that support it. But 
um, they are primarily a civilian operation uh, in the way that they are conducting things. They are not purely there as a as a war fighting tool. They are just given war fighting tools in case um, they're necessary. Because you know, you you never know if you're going to run into, um, you know, open arms or or um, uh, cagey distance. So you always need to be prepared, but the within the military, as, as Jamesy was saying, we often have, you know, it, the difference between civilian life and military life is the purpose and understanding what you're expected to do. Uh, in civilian life, no one tells you what they expect of you. They just give you a list of a bunch of expectations. Uh, and you have to find your own way, but the military always makes it very clear about what you're about. Yeah, I think that makes sense, especially with regards to how Star Trek was tackling this. The thinking very much was along the lines of either we go and encounter them or they are going to come and encounter us. And, you know, that won't necessarily be a good thing. If we're unprepared for that encounter, then, you know, here, you know, because they're approaching us because they've already got advanced technology, then that may be, you know, strategically disadvantageous to us. Whereas if we go and catch them, especially, you know, pre-warp pre or on the dawn of warp technology, then we can, you know, bring them into the fold and avoid, you know, potentially a situation where, they advance to the point where they become warmongers and try and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and try and kill us off. Right. So the idea being, you know, that we're going to go and figure out what's out there. So we don't get surprised. We don't get, you know, caught with our pants down in a world full of aliens. This strategy makes sense because you are otherwise going to be approached by the Borg and assimilated. Right, yeah, Joshua. Several, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, Victoria. No, no, I, I was going to say, go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I mean, this this commentary, you know, a couple comments, probably extends beyond just into darkness. But, um, you know, thinking back to the original series, there was, and maybe it was influenced by, you know, the time at which Star Trek was made. You know, that, that original series era... Uh, definitely had a little bit of that um, pro-West kind of propaganda, you know, in there. And then if you kind of look at, yeah, you know, it's it's cached in terms of an explorer thing, and we're, and what what he said I think is actually pretty close to the mark. But there's a lot more military across Starfleet than. It, you know, that's why we had, if you extend it out to the other parts of the timeline, right, you had the the conflict with the Maquis, and you had, you know, our encounter with the Borg, and so it was, it was civilian and an explorer until, um, but it was still, there was an expectation that while you have that primary uh, exploring scientific discovery uh, default, there was it, it there's sort of this this thing and, and admittedly i haven't finished all of the star trek series and everything but um 
like under the surface, you know, where people could be expected to transform into military any second. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking very probably more so about DS9 than I am, um, you know, specifically this movie. But I, but I do see that across um, the way people are, you know, state officers and crew are expected to act. There's like this expectation of readiness to, uh, to switch into military mode. Well, I, I love that because it leads into my, my next sort of question. Uh, welcome to the stage, Ryan. Uh, I, I do, I do want to explore this military thing a little bit uh, more. We'll move through, um, th- through some of these questions and, and some of the things and maybe get back to that if we've got some time. Um, but this readiness that you talk about, um, I noted that Sulu uh, was, well, my question was, was Sulo defiant or showing leadership when he refused to evacuate? And uh, many others followed his lead and also refused to evacuate. And it appeared to be leadership to me. Um, and I saw leadership uh, from him throughout the movie. And it reminds me that one doesn't have to be in a position of authority to be a leader. And so I wanted to get your take on Sulu T and then, and then toss this to um, the rest of the, the stage as well. Um, but I really noted the character of Sulu in, in this movie and, and really enjoyed um, the, the strength that uh, he was given. Yes, absolutely. I, I appreciated just what love they gave to the character, what strength they gave, you know, his role and the, the, the role of the first of the first follower because he was being a first follower when, when Spock strapped in. Right. Um, and you know, for him to in turn strap in was this, you know, metaphorical, uh, uh, stance that he was showing leadership to the crew of this is what you do. You go down with your ship because the ship was going down. That was the reality they were facing. There was no saving this situation. They knew that, and yet they stayed. And that's why Kirk did what he did, right? And so that was one of the most, you know, heroic examples of of the sacrifice of leadership. It wasn't Kirk who knew that he was giving up his life to uh to to save them it was sulu who was giving up his life not knowing that he was going to save them and yet he did because he made that sacrifice so that is i think one of the most critical pieces of highlighting the sacrifice of leadership and why it's required that people make hard choices when in leadership uh, positions as opposed to popular choices. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Well, it's, it's, um, it's embedded into Starfleet, right? Like the, the Kobayashi Maru is a perfect example that Starfleet really uh, embeds the idea of the greater good into their officers. 
And uh, it's it's not just that O'Kirk is staying with the ship and I must go down with the ship as well out of this sort of romantic attachment to the Enterprise. It's the we're descending out of orbit, out of control onto Earth. And if this starship falls on a city, it's it's lights out for millions of people, right? Um, so Sulu is also doing the the I'm going down to the ship to minimize the casualties on earth to land this on the ocean somewhere versus possibly landing on, you know, a, a city, uh, which is what Khan was doing specifically with his ship by ramming it into San Francisco. So there's, there's the, the members of the Federation, people who want to join Starfleet already have a predisposition to, uh, wanting to give up their lives for the greater good. And I think it's something very fascinating about the mindset of uh, Starfleet. And, and I didn't think that that scene was gratuitous at all. I thought it was perfect. The way that Khan said, you know, set destination for Starfleet Academy, and then had his ship absolutely plowing into San Francisco. I thought it looked great i didn't think it was you know gratuitous in the same way that i think a lot of the scenes from like the transformer movies are just completely gratuitous right i thought that it really felt themely and and came together in such a way that it it made the movie feel good so i really appreciate you bringing that up ryan thank you well, and let's not forget that someone said earlier that Star Trek is a reflection of our culture, right? And um, the USA has had several transformative moments, and uh, 9-11 is a, is a cultural wound and a, a sort of, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, trauma. And uh, And in some ways you know, it did influence Star Trek because now the idea of the, the suicide mission, right, crashing into a city or a planet or a outpost uh, seems a lot more real to us than than before 9-11, right? So that there's, there's definitely co co connective tissue between uh, Star Trek, the time that it was made in, um, and the trauma that it was dealing with. And Star Trek has always done that, uh, has helped us cope with cultural trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Please go ahead, director, yeah. Oh, I apologize, I didn't mean to step on you. No, I just I... wanted to, uh, um, to, to say yes right on and, and I had seen you un unmute, so please go ahead. The, uh, the context of Star Trek's origination uh, is, you know, a lot of World War II um, uh, veterans uh, mixed in with some Korean War veterans that would have had influence on the programming. Uh, you know, you, it was at the time that the original series was, was very left. Uh, of where the country was, you know, it's very progressive, it's, you know, in the futurist um, idea of it, but it was still grounded in an understanding of history of explorers and, and also people that had worked as um, 
um, propagandist for the United States military. Um, you know, like Dr. Seuss, uh, in, not, not that he worked with um, Star Trek, but um, the example of, uh, of people that produced media to support the U.S. system. Um, so I think that that unique understanding helps you understand why the, a more military presentation for this future as opposed to a civilian-driven presentation for this future. The concerns I have is that later the films seem to place the leadership on Earth at odds with the captains uh, out and about. You know, that is a trend that in the more modern version of Star Trek um, that we see that there, that there's a failure of the leadership and the captains, the, the mavericks are the ones that are the moral conscious of the society and the society itself is, is in the wrong more and more. I mean, Picard, uh, the second series, which, you know, if you're talking about Picard, you are talking about leadership. Um, and, you know, it brings into question at the point that you have stopped being the government agent um, and you're starting to look for the moral um, uh, imperative that the values instilled in you um, that feel like they're being betray betrayed by the society you have supported. Um, I think that's a very interesting and, and, and concerning um, turn, you know, it speaks to a different kind of cultural uh, moment instead of one about bringing us forward. And now it's become about one of questioning, questioning the structures in the societies that we participate in. Wow. <laughs> I love having you guys here. Oh my God, the depth of these conversations is great. Um, I, I think that uh, T and I will have to regroup on on some of this, and I, I'm going to uh, listen again uh, to just the last um, 10 minutes. Uh, I think there's a couple of other shows we can do on this, maybe just um, Star Trek and the military on its own, um, which uh, would be really interesting to do. I I, I just looked at the time. I did want to gush about Khan a little bit, but if we have time at the end, I would like to get back to that because, oh man, that that was amazing. Um, but I, I would like to move on because we we had two other episodes that had some uh, some good uh, representations of this theme. So this is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse, and uh, our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. And today we're discussing the sacrifice of leadership. The next uh, topic is, um, let me just see my notes here, a quality of mercy. Uh, T, can you give us a summary of this just to remind everybody? And then I've got a few questions because I, um, I watched this twice this week because I loved it. So please, please give us a, um, a summary. Yeah, definitely. A quality of mercy from Strange New Worlds, season one, episode 10, the last episode of the season. First aired this year, July, 7, July 7th, 2022. So in this episode, Captain Pike thinks he's figured out how to escape his predestined fate of death at a very specific point in the future when he's visited by his future self, 
who shows him the consequences of his actions and how bad the universe could be were it not for a leader making a sacrifice. I chose this episode first and foremost because it was a great episode in an otherwise lackluster series. And so if you try and watch Strange New Worlds and you find yourself wondering if it gets better, it does, but unfortunately not until the series finale. Now, I choked up big time when Pike and Spock talked about their friendship because it really gives depth to Spock as a character who would go on to be a friend to Kirk and sacrifice himself in a lot of ways. Pike's decision to not try and cheat his fate ultimately underpins his strength in a ca as a captain and, in my mind, makes him a better captain than Kirk because he's willing to accept the need to die, whereas Kirk would like to think of himself as invincible. All of this, in turn, gives new depth to Pike in the original series, where he, where, uh, before he was replaced by Kirk, and more importantly, to Spock and Kirk's relationship and how that was influenced by Pike. Yeah, thanks for that. That was that's great because that's how I felt about the the show. It was it was really deep and it was about relationships, and um, and looking at it on its own, it it was good, but in the whole scheme of things, as we know that this is sort of a prequel, um, that whole scene at the end twice. I teared up like I, I got choked up. I guess I could have uh, probably if I see it the next time, I'm just going to cry because it was just touching and it was like they said everything and didn't say much. Right. Um, but it also set the stage, I thought, for even though it was, you know, it's one of the more recent uh, series set the stage. It kind of gave me a bit more of an impression of why Spock would sacrifice so much for Kirk over and over again. Because he realizes, you know, they've set this up that that Pike sacrificed someone died so that Spock could live, and so you know this this has to have influenced him, right? Um, and and certainly we're writing this afterwards. I know that, but I I, I love putting it into the whole story. So my question, <laughs> big time, if you were visited by your future self, what would you want them to tell you? And if they asked you to make a sacrifice, would you or could you? I'd want them to tell me which one of my endeavors would ultimately be the most influential and important so that I could focus on that one while I have the time that I have. And if they may ask me to make a sacrifice, I would just say yes, because I know how deeply ingrained that that understanding is from all of the Star Trek that I've watched. That's, that leadership does require sacrifice. That when I ask someone like myself to make a sacrifice, it's because there's a really, really important reason and that reason is, you know, uh, one of uh, one of leadership. It's one of putting forth the 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 con you know the the consequences that need to that need to occur regardless of one's self. 
Thank you. Yeah, it it's interesting. Like, I guess perhaps you've thought about this over the years. Um, I hadn't thought about this really until now. It, it, having my future self, being able to see into the future is different from having your future self tell you. And I had to consider, do I trust myself? <laughs> and there would be times in my life where I'm like, you're crazy. I don't trust you, right? Um, but yeah, I, I had to think for myself, like, what what would I do? And um, I guess if you've got somebody, you know, coming and saying, you know, now's the time to do this in order, and you know, it's there's an explanation. Um, yeah, I mean, it would it would take some some doing, but of course, we're not. Tr- trained in the military either. So, um, you know, I'm not used to sacrificing. I think about my dad. Um, I just thought about this now. I'm going to share this. Um, my dad was a firefighter, uh, as were a few of my cousins and uncle. And um, I think when you know that you, you know, you train so that you don't die, but you know that there's a chance firefighters die in the fire all, all the time, right? Um I remember uh, when he was actually on his deathbed and he, uh, we were thinking maybe he could get a lung transplant and he was just over the age where it wasn't really going to be sustainable. At a certain age, they just think you're too old, right? And uh, I was having a conversation with him and he looked at me and he goes, "I I don't want one. And I was like, what? right? Like he was healthy. Otherwise, he just had this lung issue. And he goes, for that to happen, somebody else has to die. And I realized, like, he had faced this his whole life, right? And he would have to understand that somebody else died for him to be able to live. And he was 70. And that he just didn't want some kid on a bike or, you know, in an accident to die so that he could have their lungs. That was just abhorrent to him. And uh, I thought that was, uh, you know, it was just, it's touching, obviously. So anyway, I'm going to put it to the, to the room, because I've lost it again, as Star Trek often makes me. Um, So anybody else on stage, if you've, if you want to answer the question, if you were visited by your future self, what would you want them to tell you? And if they asked you to make a sacrifice, would you? Joshua, uh, maybe you'd like to answer this first. Yeah, um, thanks for the, the share there. That was, that was touching. Um, I think I would have a bit of skepticism that it was me, so I'll just assume that they were able to convince me. Um, I think that, um, you know, some of what T said in terms of where I would have most impact or what type of, you know, where they were most fulfilled. I think I'd maybe more than any specific thing. I think I would just want them to share the things that they appreciated the most in the course of their journey forward so that I can, um, you know, can pay attention, you know, for me that I will be able to pay attention to the things that are going to have that similar impact for me and for my interaction with other people. Um, but I, I think I would be so overwhelmed by the experience of meeting my future self of just getting past the being convinced part that, um, I would be open to 
pretty much anything they wanted to share with me because they're going to have the wisdom as to know, um, you know, what would have impacted them because they already came back and visited themselves. <laughs> if you kind of go in, you know, the whole set of, of, of timeline theory, right, where they remembered what was told to them when they were me. Um, so I, I think I would just kind of let them share. Great. Thank you. Um, and welcome to the stage, Rachel. We don't really go in PTR order, but is there anybody else who um, wants to comment on the question? If you were visited by your future self, what would you want them to tell you? Director. Um, yeah, you know, I've often had conversations with the future self I wanted to have. Um, so instead of being visited by my future self, I have tried to project who I want to be. Um, and as far as sacrifice, uh, sacrifice happens in the context of the moment. Like either you are ready to make um, the call or you are not ready to make the call. Um, and, the, and you're gonna deal with the consequences of the choice. Um, and the question you always have to answer is, uh, if I'm dead, then there's no consequences, right? Like the, the consequence is, fi is finality and depending on where you fall in that thinking, uh, whether there's a next or not, um, there's a finality to at least this interface. When you're making a sacrifice to yourself, like I am going to not go out and enjoy myself. I'm going to study. Like Wesley Crusher sacrificed a great deal of himself in, a, in service to the idea of his father. Um, you know, Kirk was a maximalist. He always sought a win-win win and if others weren't going to win he was going to right so he had a very different he decided he was never going to sacrifice someone else and he wasn't going to sacrifice himself and that was always the crux of when he faced issues um The questions that you when when we're coming to these ideas is there are sacrifices and then there are sacrifices, right? Um, there's delayed gratification and then there's doing something larger than yourself. And both of those things can only be experienced by experiencing them. You can decide who you want to be, but you will naturally react as you are internally in a given situation. That that's just my thinking um as a person who's lived life it, i've never had to sacrifice my life otherwise i wouldn't be having a conversation with you here and if i am then we have another conversation to have but um i have made enough sacrifices for things and i have chosen not to sacrifice on others so it, it always comes down to what is the value system that you hold true to yourself and whether or not that that is at play in the conversation.
Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Everybody gives me so much to, to think about. Um, uh, welcome to the stage, Johanan. Um, Johanan, this is the Star Trek Sundays room on Clubhouse, and um, this is part of a, um, a a show that's going to be posted on uh, YouTube. So we're going to be, uh, we have a narrow focus on just what we're talking about today, which is the sacrifice of leadership. And right now uh, we are uh, talking about um, a quality of mercy. And uh, my question to the group was, if you were visited by yourself, what would you want them to tell you? Uh, so we'll just go, uh, Jamesy, uh, do you have a comment on, on that? Well, I'll say I really liked T's answer. Um, I identified with it a lot, and I think I think part of that um, contextualized is like the the last thing that I would want to hear from my future self is you should have spent less time with like instant gratification and more time thinking about delayed gratification. Like, I feel like that's something that my present self tells me often enough that it would be awfully redundant to waste time travel saying something that I tell myself so frequently. Um, and just like we're kind of within that context, the, the meme that I posted um, as my profile picture right now is a depiction of a man who achieved really great things, uh, at least like in the lore, right? But like kind of lost his ability to enjoy a vacation like any time he spent away from work, he was thinking about, you know, what could be going wrong without him being present. And um, that strikes me as, as something that could really get in the way of having a fulfilled life. I think that's mm, a very yeah. way of, of framing the, the sacrifice of leadership is, you know, through Picard's eyes, is what what he gave up in order to to be a starship captain and to have the lifestyle that he ultimately had, so I think that's a that's a great share, Jamesy. Thank you, Rachel. You came up uh, when we started talking about this episode, so I'm not sure if you have something specific for this episode that you wanted to share, or um, if if you do, we can we can quickly do that and then we'll move on to the first duty. Oh, I just I wanted to answer the question too. Oh yeah, um, please, please. Yeah, I just, um, like, like James, you just said that what T said really resonated with me, too, because I feel like I have so many varied interests, and I'm trying to pursue them all at the same time, and, like, I've been searching myself, like, what should I just focus on? And so that would be an interesting question to ask and yourself, like, according to their experience, what do they think I should focus on? But I also would want to know very specific questions answered, like, um, what do my children grow up to be? Um, where does the screenplay that I'm working on, do, do I ever make it into a movie? Like I would have very specific questions like that. Um, and then I also, although at the same time, I'm like, part of me is like, do I want to ruin the experience of being surprised by what my children become by asking that question? But it's like, I really want to see how they grow. And then as far as a sacrifice, it's like, I don't know, at first I was like, gonna say, well, yeah, I totally make a sacrifice to make certain things happen in my life. But then at the same time, I think of my children and I'm like, it depends on the sacrifice. Because if you're asking me to do the ultimate sacrifice as in lose my life, I would be hard pressed to say yes, because I wouldn't want to do that to my children, you know? Um, but 
to sacrifice in other ways for if that sacrifice is going to lead to a better world or a better me or a better life for my kids, then yeah, I'm all about it. But yeah, so I was just going to say that. Well, I think that's an interesting perspective because as a parent, um, uh, not not as a parent, I don't speak as a parent, but I know that as parents, um, people, their, their values uh, or what they value changes uh, dr dramatically sometimes. And, um, you know, I remember a friend of mine and I were going to visit a friend who was dying and the three of us were like besties when we were younger. And it was uh, at, at New Year's and it, we had to go into the mountains. We had to drive and we were driving very slowly. And she was very hesitant to actually go on this trip with me because it was dangerous to drive in the mountains uh, in the snow. And um, she had to think of her kids. So, you know, at one point, um, sadly, our, our friend passed away while we were on the the travel to get to her. So we just turned around and, and came home. Um, but, uh, but it, it was risk-taking and, uh, you know, we measured those things. Um, had it gotten worse with the snow, we had decided a certain level of, of weather we could handle and, and, uh, the weather that we would turn back for because she was not willing to risk her life to see a friend because she had these responsibilities, these duties to her kids, right? Um, and so it's almost like you're the captain of that ship. That has to be your priority. However, if the people on that ship um, need you to make that sacrifice, you would. I mean, that, that's what I'm hearing from you. But outsiders, you're not going to sacrifice for people outside that ship. Um, yeah, that's it. It's interesting as a as a parent. I think that it it does change you, and you're for, you're forever that that leader. Um, right. I like that's interesting what you say because sometimes I want to do things like see what it's like to jump out of a out of a helicopter with a parachute. But then I think of my kids and like if that goes tragically wrong, I, that would be horrible for my children. So it's like I kind of have to, even though I hate to say it, you kind of have to play it safe a little bit. Well, that leads beautifully into our, our next one, uh, actually, because we it, it, it is about risk. Um, T, if we can uh, move to the first duty, if you want to give us a, a summary of that, that would be great. And uh, then I have a couple of questions. Yes, definitely. Uh, the first duty in Star Trek The Next Generation, Season 5, Episode 19, First aired on the 30th of March, 1992. It was a, oh, feels like feels like a long time ago, because I guess it was. Um, in this episode, an accident during a Starfleet Academy training exercise leads to the death of one of the students. And Wesley Crusher must decide whether loyalty or truth is the first duty. And I chose this episode because Wesley is faced with a rough decision of sticking by his friends who have sworn to each other to stick to their story or telling the truth, betraying his friends and jeopardizing his own career at Starfleet. Now, at first, he lies during the hearing in the investigation into the accident, but when Captain Picard confronts him with evidence showing him that he is, in fact, partly responsible for what happened, 
He has to consider his options more carefully, and he realizes that his captain didn't teach him so poorly about the need for personal sacrifice and leadership. And eventually, Wesley comes clean, displaying why sacrifice is required of our leaders and showing himself a worthy leader in the captain's eyes. Oh, yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, I have some notes on on this. Uh, I have a, a big question first, and then I have a, a couple of other uh, side notes um, about it, because uh, I, I found some leadership bits in there that maybe weren't obvious, but um, he, Wesley obviously chose selfish, selfishly twice, as you said, in doing the maneuver that cost them their friends' lives and in lying at the hearing. Um, was he acting selfishly a third time because he didn't want to disappoint Captain Picard? Or did he really learn the lesson about the need for selflessness in leadership? What do you think, T? I think initially he was shamed. I, I think that when that really hard dressing down scene in which the captain, um, you know, was was confronting him with evidence, um, he was he was shamed, and and you know his reply was you know uh, I I'm, I declined to I, I declined to respond or something like that, right? And Picard got enraged. He's like, you declined to respond, and went on to you know explain to him just you know what what a fuck up this was. And then I think at that point, that's when the thought process really kicked in. But it wasn't until in the hearing, in the moment, when he finally thought it through, and that's when he came clean. In that moment, I felt like he finally learned the lesson, that he finally saw, you know, the, the true value, that this wasn't just about, you know, the shame that he felt during that dressing down, it really was something that he eventually learned. But he learned it hard. It took him It took him a while, and he had to get right up to the moment to really internalize that lesson and, you know, and follow through with what it meant to be a leader, which was to potentially sacrifice his own career. And the and the friendship and career of his of his fellow students. Thank you. Um, it, just before we move on to the uh, the rest of the stage, just to kind of set the tone again, because that was a specific question um, that that might be a, a bit too narrow for everybody. But um, my question it brings in now Nick the the leader of the the um the group the the flying group <laughs> I forgot the name of it uh Nova Squadron that's what it was was Wesley's confession as a duty to the federation Josh the the person who died and his family a display of leadership like was that like you just said that he did it out of shame um and maybe he learned the lesson later but if it is a, a uh, display of leadership was it better leadership than Nick displayed, and um, and was Nick's leadership something similar to what Kirk might have done? Because I felt that he was kind of a wild card. But um, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, 
that the the difference between the two leaders uh, for a minute, and then and then we'll put that sort of leadership question to the stage. Yeah, I think that you know, initially when Leslie when Wesley put forth the truth, he was displaying leadership, and at that point he was exposing Nick. Nick had nothing left nothing left to lose, and was simply you know acting out of out of you know love for his for his fellow companions but but that wasn't leadership on his part that was just him you know trying to save face with his friends and and trying to in a in a situ in a situation where he really had nothing to lose because he was you know they they were all going to get kicked out anyway right that he could save some face with his friends and you know help some of his friends and help Wesley not get kicked out and maybe that would, you know, make him look like a better person. But in my mind, he's just a spineless toad. He, he really didn't, you know, have the leadership qualities that are required of, of, a, of a Starfleet officer. And I don't like him. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Um, so for those on the stage who remember this and... and um... Uh, want to answer the question because I have a few other points from this. Um, is there anybody who wants to add anything to that about uh, Wesley being a leader and and perhaps even answering the question if you can remember the episode um, whether he was shamed into um, confessing or w whether you thought that he um, had learned the lesson before that? Well, I, I think Wesley... You know, it's the thin blue line problem. Um, how do you both maintain camaraderie and sh demonstrate that you are loyal to those around you uh, versus uh, personal accountability? Um, he is wrestling with the whole time wanting to be accepted by this group versus what he knows is his internal um, choice. Like he knows what, as soon as things go wrong, Wesley's in, uh, initial response is to tell, is to tell the truth, right? And he allows himself to be pushed off his moral center in a bid to respect um, the group. The problem that he failed at leadership was before they made the attempt. Uh, that's when being um, a person to buck the trend, that would have been the time for him to actually had stepped up and said, I don't think we're prepared for this. But he had allowed his judgment to be countermanded by his uh, superior in that case, right, uh, the, in rank. Um, now, he also, when he goes to speak to Picard at the end of the episode, what Picard is trying to do is, yes, get at the truth, but Picard allows Wesley to decide how he's going to exercise it, right? Um, and so Wesley makes the choice that he was always wanting to make, which was to be honest about the situation, 
and the uh, the gentleman that takes the blame and it, I, 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 isn't he the same uh, pilot that later comes back in Deep Space Nine that's selected for the some of the McKee missions? Um, he sacrifices himself in a moment of preservation because now he's realized that Wesley is going to tell the truth and it wasn't Wesley's um, push to, that led to the failure. You know, uh, the outcome is he took responsibility for it. The um, impetus for taking responsibility was Wesley's responsibility. So Wesley demonstrated leadership, was willing to take the hit that he was going to take, and the person that was actually responsible was inspired to do the right thing. That That's my take on it. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes, uh, purely because of that. Uh, I had had a similar situation in the military, um, and I've often had to have situations where I had to make choices between loyalty to corpse to the spree or loyalty to myself and who I know I am. And I that land was, my plane. That was, uh, that was um, perfect and amazing. Thank you. Um, James Ian Vitigus put into the chat a quote from the card, which he gave during the dressing down of Wesley. He said, the first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth, it's the guiding principle on which Starfleet is based. And he, and he gave it in such this, you know, angry, I, I'm so disappointed. He said, you know, I've never, I've never been disappointed in you until now, right? He gave this in such a angry fatherly tone of you've let me down as a son, you know? And I thought it was just such a, a personal moment because that scene was hard. It was not a, a fun romp with through the holodeck with Moriarty. It was not a, you know, exploring an alien planet. It was right there in his ready room happening. And it was extended. And it was, it, it was one of those things where it was like I felt myself growing increasingly uncomfortable because I was identifying with the guilt that Wesley was feeling. The, the second half of that quote is, and if you can't find it within yourself to tell the truth, then you don't deserve to wear that uniform. Brilliant. Right. Yeah, Jamesy, thank you for uh, everything that you've been putting in the chat, too. I've been screen capping it. I can't read all of them at, at the same time that I'm listening, but I, I always like to go back and, and read them while I do a, a re-listen to, um, to the show here. So I really appreciate that. Um, Rachel, Joshua, did you have anything to comment on on that scene? Okay. Oh, Joshua, uh, yeah, go ahead. There we go. Um, just that, uh, I think it was T, um, I was doing some stuff, so I didn't quite hear who it was, but I think T said he identified with the guilt <laughs> and, um, I was, I think, gosh, not quite 12 years old 
when I saw that episode for the first time, because I saw it when it first aired. So I think you said it was March of 92, if I recall. Um, and that That's was, at, yeah, and that was at the time in my life where I was starting to assert my own individuality and my own kind of thing and wildly bumbling my way through it as most of us do when we are 12 or nearly 13 years old, you know, in that kind of age range. And so, um, it, it yeah, <laughs> that, that one hit me deep because I felt like Picard was scolding me. Yeah, it really worked. And w within that little spiel, you know, one of the qualifications was personal truth, which I find to be like a pretty low bar. Like if you can't even hold up to it, like a personal truth, like personal truths get pretty wishy-washy. Right, right. Um, so I have a, a question since uh, a few of you remember this well. Um, I had seen this. I do remember seeing it when it was first airing. That dates me a little bit. Um, but I was thrilled because I don't remember all of the details of these. But I was thrilled when I saw the gardener Boothby, played by Ray Walston, I think, who starred in My Favorite Martian. And it, <laughs> while we've been going through this Star Trek um, uh stuff that we've been doing the last month i've been realizing how much i love sci-fi and now i always have so uh, but i loved my favorite martian it was a show that i adored in reruns i'll state uh when i was a kid and boothby's mentorship of the cadets over the years is for me an example of how one again does not need to have a position of authority in order to be a leader and when Picard and Boothby are having a conversation and Picard uh, says to him that he regretted not telling Boothby at the time how much he appreciated his help, but Boothby claimed Picard's later noteworthy Starfleet career was his repayment enough. Um, I wondered afterwards, I, I thought, did Boothby make sacrifices? Perhaps he sacrificed a different life, one with less that was, you know, less laborious in order to continue to lead the cadets because it felt like he knew that his place as this gardener who was just on the sidelines, who could drop these little gems once in a while, was a really important place. And I think it is. I've met many people who were these wise ones like this. And, and in fact, I read about Boothby and tried to find whether whether that was actually addressed, whether he did give up a career uh, being something else in order to be this wise one. I couldn't find anything. Um, but I wondered if anybody else um, noted that and and noticed Boothby as much as I did or at all. T? Well, I, I would be surprised in the slightest to learn that uh, Boothby was a watcher, like Guinan, um, one of these oh, people right. who... Right, and if you if you've seen the second the second um, the second season of uh, Picard, you you know that that watchers like Guinan, you know, are, are put in place to to guide people to to help people, and um, and and you know it, it would not surprise me in the slightest to learn that you know that Boothby is more than he seems. Um, maybe he's 
you know, a retired admiral. Maybe he's, um, you know, maybe he's a watcher and is much, much older and more experienced than he lets on. And he's just playing the role because he understands that that's the role that he needs to play. Um, but he certainly does seem very wise beyond his years. And I think that you bring up a good point to say that his job is gardener, but his role is counselor. And before Picard had Troy, he had Boothby. And if you don't, you know, and if you don't, you know, understand that, that Troy is sitting on the on the bridge, I, I don't see why Boothby would be in, in any different capacity for Picard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, anybody else want to comment on Boothby? I have a little bit of trivia I wanted to share as well <laughs> that I found through that. But um, did anybody else um, want to comment on Boothby? I would just say that Boothy is at least an elder, and maybe part of the lesson he's learning is like elders don't have to have ad admiralty tags on their lapel to count as elders. It's kind of a, despite what somebody's official role is, they they could still have other more substantive roles. Yeah, I mean, he also features often in Picard's remembrances of his times at the. Um, Academy and was also there for Picard's sake when Picard was uh, facing a similar conundrum uh, of a different sort. So the role of Boopy is he's the unexpected mentor. He's the when the student is ready, the master uh, arrives uh, character. So his job is to bring the deus ad machina uh counseling without judgment um so you know he's a fantastic character and uh, i'm sure you have had those characters in your life where uh, they were people that on the list uh were below rank or below status but you uh they gave you wisdom that was beyond your reach um or at least pointed you in the direction you needed to go and then allowed you to get there. So uh, he, he's a fantastic character and um, and uh, and one that I have always tried to emulate. Um, you know, I, I might be a tangential piece of advice for someone um, that that uh, could be something they need in a moment. Um, so out of all of that show, He's the character I would most want to emulate. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm glad that you said that because it, I just that kind of resonated and rippled with me um, afterwards, and it it sort of reminded me of my grandmother who used to say nothing, but everybody said, "Oh, Grandma was such a good counselor to all of us," and we'd say, "What does Grandma say?" And it was nothing. She would just let us work it out or sometimes she would we would tell her something and she would say well what do you think about that and she would make us work it out ourselves and I found that Boothby was kind of like that because he didn't tell Picard what was going on he sort of hinted to let Picard figure it out about what what the current thing was um and, and in in a similar way Picard didn't tell um 
Wesley exactly what he needed to do. He said, you know what you need to do and, and let it be his responsibility, which I loved. Um, yeah, that was, that was a great episode and I, I loved him in it. <laughs> and it was just, I even went back and watched the pilot of uh, my favorite Martian after that. Um, but one of the things that I um, wanted to share, cause it was, it was quite sweet was during the filming of the first duty, the cast and the crew uh, of the next generation constantly approached Walston with his old, my favorite Martian character's signature stick of head antenna, <laughs> which I thought was really cute that they wore antennas. Um, but there was a, also a note that said that at one point he had forgotten his lines and while they took a break to regroup, um, he started reciting some Shakespeare with another actor and he remembered every single line that was in this particular play. Uh, of course, he was a, a stage actor as well. So he would have had to recite those lines hundreds of times and uh, maybe thousands and, um, and everybody just stopped and watched and afterwards applauded. I like hearing those little background things, especially with um, actors um, so seasoned as, as him and, um, and that he sort of got, uh, some recognition because he was a, a great character actor before my favorite Martian. And then like it happens so often you get a hit and it's goofy. And then you struggle for sometimes decades after that to find your feet again, because everybody just sees you as the Martian. So, and of course, you know, I have to admit that that's exactly what I saw when, when I saw the gardener was my favorite Martian, not all of his other uh, roles. So um Anyway, uh, that was just a little something that I found that I thought you guys might be interested in. Um, T, did you want to say anything else about Boothaby? No, I just, I, I think he's just an amazing character. And I, I really hope that um, maybe in Picard we get to see him again. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I'm, I'm so looking forward to watching more of these shows. Um I, oh, Joshua, you've unmuted. Would you like to add something? Just that the uh, mentors that have had the biggest impact are the ones that have asked me the right questions more than the uh, mentors that have, you know, just directly spilled it out or, you know, spelled it out and A, B, C, D. So um, that sort of patient sort of thing uh, i think you were talking about your grandma and you know how that related to boothie and whatnot but i i think that that's the genius of a good mentor is to let the person figure it out for themselves and just nudge them just enough rather than trying to do too much of it for them but that's a you know maybe further outside the pill yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Rachel, I'm wondering as a as a parent, I, I, I think director might be a parent as well, but I'm just wondering as a parent, um, this whole nudging thing, how does that sit with you? Because sometimes parents really want to um, help their kids, but we, we see over and over again that, that the nudging and standing back and letting them fall and stand up again is, is uh, you know, a good way of, of letting them grow into responsibility. D do conversations like this affect you at all and, and make you think differently about parenting? I, 
I'll share a quick story that uh, involves my daughter that I think falls into this situation. She really wanted to play softball. She had never played a sport. Um, she's a person that likes to start new things and not follow through on them. Um, but we went and played catch. Uh, I tried to encourage her how to hit. She worked really hard for a month and then tried out for the softball team. Um, meanwhile, she came back from the softball tryouts and was devastated that she had put all this effort in and the coach didn't pick her for the team. You know, I, as a parent, I could have gone off on that coach and said, dang it, why didn't you take my daughter? She can learn. She's interested. Maybe if she had the camaraderie, she could participate and, and grow as a softball player, you know, why don't you invest in her? But instead, what I did is I sat with her. I said, most of those girls have probably been playing softball for years, not for a month, but for years. Their parents either forced them to do it or they got into it because they really enjoy it and they enjoy the camaraderie. Now, if you work on softball for another year and then you go try out and it doesn't work, then I could understand why you could get upset if that's something you really want to do but you have to put your time in to be get the, to get the results you want and she holds that up to me as an example that she's used uh in the rest of her life about how much effort she puts into something before she expects a return um so i i don't know what moment of clarity i had i'm normally kind of an idiot uh that happened to be a moment that my child recognizes as an important moment she wrote it into a script even as as a fictional father giving advice so we don't know the impact we have but the impetus to go solve the problem is normally not the right move the way picard gave Wesley, the opportunity to solve the problem or live with the consequence the way uh, he was given the chance to solve the problem or uh, and uh, face the consequences. Um, I, I find that those are the moments that you need to be self-aware of your own self to get out of the way of allowing your child to find their path. That's just me, though. Thank you. Thank you for that share. Um, Rachel. Yeah. Um, well, that was a good example. I, I don't know. I haven't really, um, like I was, the, I was thinking about it in a different context of trying to nudge your child into a direction they don't want to go and then stepping back and letting them just letting them go their own path. Like I had a struggle with that because like, I it might be a little thing, but I was a huge book or I still am a bookworm. And when I was younger, I would just read constantly and I couldn't understand why my daughter did not want to feel the same about books and reading. And I kept trying to get like buy her books and kept trying to get her to read and read this, read that, read whatever. And she just didn't want to. But then she eventually on her own found a love of graphic novels. And at first I was pushing back against that because I'm like, well, that's not a real book. Like, <laughs> like uh, I want you to read these other books. And I kept trying to like capture her interest, but she was just like too interested in the graphic novels. But then I had to step back and be like, well, that's still reading. I don't know what my problem is. Why I, it's still reading. And if that's the 
method that she finds um, helpful or enjoyable, then I don't want, I don't want reading to be a chore to her. I don't want it to be something she hates. So I finally just gave in and now I'm like bought her a bunch of graphic novels and she loves reading them. So I don't know if that goes along with, with the topic, but that, that was the example that I thought of. Yes. I'm going to, you know, playfully push back against your, um, you know, that's not a real book, right? Because it's in the, it's in the name, they're novels and they have graphics in them. Right. So, so I, I, I feel you because I, I sort of initially went down that path myself is like, you know, how, how can you consider this? This is obviously just a bunch of pictures, right? But then when I started, like, uh, reading Transmetropolitan, it's a lot of reading. There's a lot of words in there. There's a lot of plot in there. There's a lot of things going on. And, and the, the graphics are just supplement to that writing, to that plot, to that novel. And so, you know, you, you got to kind of learn to let go of the idea that, you know, comic books aren't worth reading because you are reading them. Yeah, and that's funny you meant to say that because when I was younger, I used to love reading my dad's old comic books that he used to have. So yeah, I just, I guess I forgot about it as I was growing up. Right. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I thought to myself, I've never really read a, a graphic novel, but um, I did read comics when I was younger and some of them had like a, a lot of text right um, and they did have deep stories so I might have to um, revisit that I was also reminded when I when I was younger and Star Trek was on and I had seen all the Star Trek there was to see next generation of course I started reading the books that came out that were just you know novels written and you were supposed to you know consider the characters in star trek next generation so i think they even had drawings of the characters on the outside um but uh certainly that wasn't high-end literature uh so we've made some good time and we've covered lots hey joshua go ahead okay uh assuming you can hear me now my phone's being a little wonky yeah um, yep. not to rabbit trail too much but uh when i first transition to not being able to see well enough to read print anymore uh, I read books by listening to them and that whole sort of uh, elitism relevant to the type of reading um, there are people who will scream at me that listening to audiobooks is not reading and well, technically that might be the case it's a way of engaging with the content and I would submit that that is the larger piece that um, you know connecting with the what's being conveyed is the primary importance relevant to reading or graphic novels or audiobooks yeah. or whatever it is maybe. I would I would definitely amplify that, Josh, because um, you know, when when I when I read my own books, I'm bringing more to the reading than just the words on the page. And when you get the book, that's all you're getting is you're just getting the words on the page. But when you get the author doing the voices and adding the the emotions to the characters this is more this is this is greater than just reading the words on the page so i would absolutely amplify what you're saying that is a, a thing that i haven't really gotten into when discussing that and i didn't want to go too far of a rabbit trail but we do tend to think uh, <laughs> that our method is the best and, and tend to look down our nose at, at the method that isn't our uh, primary or what we believe to be superior. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll stop derailing your room now. 
<laughs> well, real quick, I just want to say it's funny that you mentioned that because I found myself during the pandemic time, I don't know what it was, something like broken me when it came to reading and I no longer, well, I also had a second kid. So I think that might be part of it, but I could no longer sit down and concentrate enough to read a book. And I was really mad at myself. And, I, and my friend was like, do audiobooks. And I used to be, I sadly admit, I used to be one of those people who would, would be like, audios, that's not real. You're not really reading. But then I, that I, then I turned to audiobooks and now I love them. And I, I, I find like, very to be very enriched by them but it, it solved my problem of not being able to sit down and read but while I'm cleaning I can throw the audiobook on or while I'm driving I throw it on and like it's it's very um it's it's a really awesome medium and and now I love it well if you guys love audio <laughs> I have to tell you Tuesdays at two o'clock PST on Clubhouse T reads his own novel and it's incredible. And it's science fiction, or is it? Tell us a little bit about it, T. I really, because there's only a few of us who attend, and it's great. And you have so many replays as well if people want to catch up on it. But I love the fact that you have these short stories that you read that are several chapters, but they all play into a bigger um novel or or story so i'd i'd like to give that a little bit of time before we close today if you don't mind well thank you for the pump victoria um yeah i wrote um i am am in the process of writing the sequel to um horizons hope and uh horizons edge is the sequel about a city called horizon city uh 85 years in the future um and the the novel is in the format of 10 short stories and so you can you can like read most of the stories in basically any order you want, um, because the stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they focus on a single character and a single set of events. And each story is a, a very cyberpunk story because there's deep irony, there's tragedy, there's you know there's there's a lot of action that happens. But if you just pick up one story there's very much a, a depth to that story and that's something that you know that i focus a lot on is delivering a good short story that if that's all you get you enjoy that because there's something to it but then if you listen to all of the stories you actually see that there's something much 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 bigger happening here they're they're all interrelated all of the events actually tie together but it's not always obvious in the moment when you're reading each individual story. It's not until you pick up all the details from all the stories that you have enough information to see how they all tie together. And so it's one of those things where, you know, if you invest a little bit of time, you get a little bit out of that short story. But if you invest a lot of time, you get the the much bigger reward of the Easter egg of sort of unlocking the the vault of, tr of treasure trove of plot and secrets and mystery and intrigue. Um, and so it's cyberpunk fiction every Tuesday at two o'clock uh, Pacific. And uh, this week we will be reading I'll, I'll be reading cleaner about a counterintelligence agent um, who lives 85 years in the future. And uh, it's it's fun. It's a fun story because he's got um, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but he's got a, uh, a a little bit of assistance from a computer who, uh, not unlike C3PO, 
tends to quote probabilities. And so it's one of those like sort of fun romps through a dynamic that I think is underexplored. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that, uh, that I hope people enjoy it. So hope to see you there. Thanks. Yeah. You'll, you'll see me for sure. Um, so I'll just, um, uh, give a little, uh, reset of what we're doing and then, um, and then I'm going to pass it to T and maybe he can tell us a little bit about, um, what's coming up in the next couple of weeks for Star Trek Sundays. So this is the Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse and our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. Uh, T, if you want to tell us what's, uh, coming up, that would be great. Yeah, definitely. So we just did the Sacrifice of Leadership. Um, on the 11th of this month is loyalty, loyalty and Betrayal. We're starting with Data's Day, which is a really fun romp um, through sort of a narration where Data sort of walks through one of his days um, and un- ends up uncovering a, uh, you know, a plot um, regarding a, a, a Vulcan who does not seem to be as she, or Romulan, who does not seem to be as she is, right? Um, followed by The Defector. Uh, this is a really great episode in which a Romulan defects um, to give Starfleet information about um, uh, Romulan operations and ends up being betrayed himself by the Romulans. Um, followed by Investigations. This one's from Voyager, and it's a really cool one um, because Neelix... Uh, searches for a traitor aboard Voyager using his morning news program. And so this is like a little unusual because Neelix is officially the cook. Um, and so fun episode. After that, on the 18th, we're doing the right to death, like the right to life and death, starting with uh, an at Arcadio, Arcadia Ego Part 2 from Picard, the first season, the last episode of that, in which Data requests that Picard... Uh, allow him to die and shut him off. Uh, followed by Death Wish from Voyager, in which Q uh, comes aboard and requests asylum and the right to commit suicide. And finally, Half Life, in which Waxana uh, Troy um, finds out that she is has fallen in love with someone who is destined to commit ritual suicide. After that, on the 25th, we're doing the Calculus of War starting with The Taste of Armageddon. Um, That is from the original series, by the way, um, in which they go go down to the planet and a a, uh, a war games is ensuing, and they end up in one of the destruction zones and are terminated, or slated for termination due to the war games that are happening. Um, Followed by yesterday's Enterprise, in which the Enterprise goes through a... um, goes uh, 22 years in its, uh, into the future and changes the course of history where Tasha Yar is still alive. That's a great one. Finally, we have statistical probabilities um, in which we have Bashir helping an eccentric uh, fellow genetically engineered humans uh, try to make useful contribution to the Federation. So I'm excited for that topic of uh, the calculus of war. Because I think it's going to really, you know, highlight some of the military things. And I think we also need to put um, a military uh, legit bait, as Victoria likes to put it. So if anybody has any any ideas for any upcoming topics, please get in touch with Victoria. Uh, you can DM her. There's contact information on StarTrekSundays.com 
We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You can get a hold of us any number of ways. But if you've got any ideas for legit bait topics about the military as it relates to Star Trek, please let us know. You can do so uh, on the contact form on the website if you like. Thanks, T. That was that was great. And I do look forward to trying to figure out how I can get all my notes from a quality of mercy into some other topics because I took so many notes um, about military and um, uh, it'll be and I've got some quotes from that that I that I liked as well. Um, Yeah, the the, yeah, the, the, the Romulan captain or whoever was the commander whatever they call him um he had some good points and then a few quotes from pike um that that i think will fit into some other topics as well so i'll save those hi alfonso you came up on stage did you have something to share with us today well we've we've come to the end of what we were gonna do unless i i wanted to ramble on about con but I'm, i'm gonna find a way to get uh um, Benedict Cumberbatch back into one of our shows. <laughs> so, T, that's a warning. <laughs> we'll try to squeeze him in because uh, I, I think at some point, uh, like I love these topics. I love looking at these themes that are um, presented through these programs. Um, and having done some homework, um, sometimes it is nice just to dive into the the movie as a whole and discuss a whole, whole bunch of themes that are are shown in these um, programs. Uh, but right now, I think we have a list of of themes we've just wanted to talk about, and um, and Star Trek being um, such a well written show is a great way of doing it. So I just want to thank everybody for coming to Star Trek Sundays, and we will be on next week as well. And uh, we just keep growing. And and so I really appreciate everybody contributing. And I always learn something and it feels like a little bit of a counseling session for me. I always end up getting a little bit um, touched by the shows as well as the shares that everybody has. So T, did you have anything else you wanted to say? Yeah, I want to just mention that if you, uh, if you do bring, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch on as a co-host, you will see me uh, turn into a melting pool of, of fangirl goo. Thank you for an amazing show. Thank you for this amazing opportunity. Thank you for everything, Victoria. Thank you for everything, everybody, Josh, Rachel, Alfonso, all the people in the audience, everybody who contributed, Jamesy and Vitigas especially, because you had that great quote. You had some really great shares. I don't see Ryan here anymore, but man, just what a great show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I really do hope to see you all in the hallways. Thanks. Okay, so um, you can save StarTrekSundays.com. It's easy to remember. I appreciate everybody coming, and hopefully we'll see you uh, next Sunday. Ciao.